0: Good morning. Welcome. I am so glad that you're a part of this teaching series, and I'm grateful that you're a part of this online worship. And I'm excited to announce in our teaching series, five questions for self-examination that we are finally at question five. And yes, even from your homes, I can hear you applauding that we've come to the end. Uh, Let me say, I am really grateful for the feedback that I've received during this teaching series. Uh, Not unlike others, uh, you're you're always open to share how God's word has become meaningful, but this has been a particularly significant journey for each of us as we have looked carefully inside of our own lives concerning some very significant questions about our our inner man, who we truly are in our faith, and who we are privately, uh, not just publicly. So these have been some very pertinent and significant questions. From where does this discipline of self-examination come? Well, it originates from God's word. Do you remember David in Psalm 139 said, God, search me, search me, oh God. The transliteration from the Hebrew would be examine my inner man. So from the Old Testament, particularly the psalmist David, uh, the, the discipline of self-examination is discovered. God, search me. Uh, that becomes a very bold request, does it not? To say, God, you decide what is right and wrong in my life and put your finger on what is wrong and God help me to deal with that so that my life better honors you. So again, this becomes a beautiful demonstration of self-examination, but we can look forward to the New Testament as well. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, of the apostle Paul, that great first century missionary and pastor said to his congregations and to those Christians of the first century, a man ought to examine Himself. And so before we ever think of who we are in the public eye, we must examine our own hearts and our motives and our thoughts. This becomes a, a significant appraisal of how we're really doing. And again, this reflects this discipline that is often unspoken in the church the discipline of self examination. But more than these statements, the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ brings to the forefront of our Christian pilgrimage the importance of looking at self concerning how we're doing in our faith. Jesus once asked a very telling question during the Sermon on the Mount, particularly Matthew chapter 7. Jesus asked this question, why do you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Jesus was metaphorically describing the enormity of our own errors compared to the speck that sometimes exists in our neighbor's eyes. And Jesus pointed out a very typical human behavior prevalent in his day and in ours. Often we're tempted to look with great scrutiny into the life of another person and to see that little speck in their life and to cast aspersions or or ridicule or negative critique against their speck, while likely many of us have this huge plank in our own eyes that we've not dealt with. So our, our Lord and Savior, as as the master teacher, reminds us uh, to look within. So I welcome you to uh, part five of our teaching series. Now, to, to better understand the importance of, of this self-examination, Gary Thomas, in, in his book, The Beautiful Fight, describes a social experiment that I think you may find very helpful concerning the need for for self-examination spiritually. The story is told of, of of a businessman who worked in the service industry who had grown very tired of the disgruntlement of his of his customers. He had grown very weary of the constant complaining and badgering at the slightest dissatisfaction and the lives of those he was tempting to serve in his business. In fact, to quote him, he wrote, I grew very weary of the the shower of angry spittle from disgruntled customers. I know that's not a, a pretty picture at all. And this individual in the service industry actually had a thought one day when he was weary of all the complaints. I wonder if the individuals who are spewing their venomous complaints actually know what they look like. And so with the proper approval from his supervisors, uh, this individual decided to to hang a huge mirror behind the service desk. And he said, uh, almost uh, as a response to what he thought would be an experiment, that as soon as the mirror went up, the complaints completely stopped. The anger and the disgruntlement ceased. Why was this? Because the one who brought the anger and the, and the, uh, the hatred in their words and the, the look on their face that wa- was uh, significant to the uh, venomous words coming out of their, their own mouths, they were able to see in the mirror what they really looked like during those moments of fit and rage and the, the complaint stopped. There's something powerful and transformative when we can really see who we truly are. Especially in those moments of, of failure, in those moments where we're not doing so well in our faith. And so self-examination from the Word of God becomes a vital discipline in our walk of faith. And the Word of God, according to the New Testament epistle writer James, the Word of God references our lives like that of a mirror, pointing out what needs to be corrected, giving us the pure view of how we're really doing within. So again, welcome to this teaching series, five questions for self-examination. And today we conclude with with question five. And yes, I hear the applause even from your home. We've made it to question five. This has been, again, such a a unique journey and I have been grateful to share these teachings with you. So let's move for our own self-examination to question five. Is Jesus the true orientation of your life or have you reduced him to only one expression of your life's commitments. Now, this question uh, became active in my own life and in my own Christian journey through a very significant verse in God's holy counsel, in God's word. And that verse that I referenced comes from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, gives us this exhortation, fix your eyes on Jesus. Better translated, fixing your eyes, keeping your eyes on Jesus. So let me read that verse to you in its entirety. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and this is what we read. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy laid before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 2 reads almost as a summary of the entire gospel. Jesus, who went to the cross, despised the shame of the cross by willingly going to the cross, dying for our sins, and then rising again and ascending to heaven at the right hand of the Father. The scripture says that when all had been done, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father's throne. So so this becomes an amazing summary of the gospel. And this summary becomes prefaced by a very intense and dramatic directive. Fix your eyes on Jesus. This one verse prompted in my own Christian growth and, and spiritual journey, uh, this consideration is Jesus the true orientation of my life? So let's personalize this question as deeply as God would have us. Is Jesus the true orientation where my eyes are fixed as a priority, as the only true affection, or have I reduced my focus on Jesus to that which is equivalent? to all of my other commitments. So let's move deep into Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, uh, for just a moment. And can we look at this verse contextually? And then not only contextually, can we look symbolically and then practically to better have a grasp on Hebrews 12 too, so that we might know for certain that we are fixing our eyes on Jesus beyond all other commitments. Because if not, we may find ourselves in that dangerous place of compartmental living where Jesus is in his own compartment and the rest of life exists elsewhere in our priorities. And on the appropriate day at the appropriate time, we live from the Jesus box. But the rest of the time we're living out of our own whims and thoughts and, and desires and prejudices and, and pursuits. Well, what this verse tells us is there should be only one box in our lives and that should be Jesus upon whom we fix our eyes so that all other pieces fit under the priority of Jesus. In other words, we should view all of our life through the lens of Jesus, through his truth. Our eyes should be fixed on him. So let's look at this truth contextually. Now, what this means in the study of God's word is a consideration of the, of the full picture that we can gain from looking at the emphasis surrounding this one statement. And I look back just one verse to Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, and we read, therefore, we have a great cloud of witnesses around us. So first, contextually, we understand that there are those who have gone before us in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, to look at the broader context, demonstrates great names of biblical history that have gone before us. Moses, Isaac, Abraham, uh, Rahab, uh, probably one of the surprises of this list, but nonetheless, reference people who regardless of their life orientation, even Gideon looked ultimately to God as their only true and, and only chief affection, looking unto Christ. As, as the one to whom our loyalty and our worship is given. And so chapter 11 of Hebrews presents this incredible list of names from biblical history that exemplify a life of faith. And then in, in, in fitting with that message, the context discovers in Hebrews 12, verse 1, there are a great cloud of witnesses around us, a great example around us, so that's the first contextual consideration, these great names from biblical history. But the next contextual consideration comes from the end of verse 1. Let us lay aside every distraction. Now again, we're attempting to understand this phrase in Hebrews 12 too, so that we can better answer and resolve our lives positively to this question. Contextually, fixing our eyes on Jesus builds upon Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. There's a great cloud of witnesses around us. Therefore, lay aside all those distractions that easily entangle us so that we can run the race before us. So the second contextual consideration, after looking at this large cloud of witnesses, becomes this phrase, let us lay aside every weight that so easily entangles us. Uh, lay aside comes from a unique Greek word, a very complex Greek word, euperistatus, which actually indicates all that lies completely around us. Now, while a distraction that is all around us might seem very complex, the opposite actually becomes the indication because what we're told here in Hebrews 12:1 is not to trip over that which would easily entangle us. Now, most scholarship would indicate because of the competitive language in these verses, referencing perhaps a Greek game or an Olympic-type game, that, that the runner would be referenced as one who should pull up his garments and his clothing so that he's not easily entangled or tripping over the that which is close to him, but that he can run fervently, keeping his eyes fixed on the goal. Now, that certainly would probably be the most common uh, definition of this phrase, lay aside that which easily entangles us. One scholar actually pointed out that the outer garment of the runner in the Greek games would be a garment that would bring great respect and, uh, and revere from the audience but the competitor could not run with that garment. So he would have to take off what what brought cheers from the audience in order to run effectively. I find a suitable and a very accurate application to the phrase, that which easily entangles us. I believe the reference is to that which is of our own self-interest, that which may bring applause from man, that which is absent of hardship and speaks well to the uh, to the convenience and the comfort that a lot of times in our flesh we desire. And so, when the context proclaims, "Look around at the great cloud of witnesses. See who has gone before you." And as a compliment, as a completion to their own faithfulness, you be as faithful by not becoming entangled with all of those. Distractions around you concerning your own self-interest that could trip you up. So therein becomes the context. If we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, we must understand how easily those uh, impediments around our lives can distract us and trip us and entangle us. All of these expressions that point to self-interest can easily take our eyes off Jesus. And before we knew it, Jesus becomes one of many expressions of affection and commitment and not the commitment. And so we move now from the context to the symbolism. We've looked at this phrase, fix your eyes on Jesus contextually. Now let's look at this phrase symbolically. Obviously the athlete and the athletic personification Becomes the emphasis here of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Anytime there is a reference to endurance or striving toward what lies before us with a run, the indication would certainly point toward a particular goal. Again, this uh, stands well in keeping with the Greek games or with Olympic type games that the writer here seems to be referencing. And obviously, this being written into a predominantly Greek culture with, with the the, the Hebrew citizens of that Greek culture in mind, obviously the reference would become very, very easily grasped so that this truth might take deep roots uh, in our lives. And so we, we run with endurance, verse 1. How do we do this? Verse 2, by keeping our eyes on the goal. So symbolically, the Olympic runner references the follower of Jesus. Those uh, things that easily entangle us references our own self-interest. The goal references Jesus. Our goal is Jesus Christ, to honor him, to please him above all commitments and affections in our lives. Uh, I believe the emphasis here would even declare that there there should not even be a close second to the commitment and affection that we should have for Jesus, So we've looked at this statement from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, contextually and symbolically. Now let's look at this statement practically. Practically, our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Practically speaking, and I may say personally, The emphasis lies with the significance of Jesus over the heart of one who trusts him. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, Jesus has authored your salvation. He began your salvation and Jesus perfects your salvation. The day you stand before him, you will stand before him spiritually complete. And until then, he he leads you in that becoming complete. He leads you in that process through the Holy Spirit. So practically, Jesus references the beginning and end of our lives. He references the full picture and narrative of who we are, having placed our faith in him. So he's the author and perfecter of our faith. So why would we look elsewhere? Our, our parents can be great examples for us. I hope I've always been great examples for my daughters. But I'm not the author and perfecter of my daughter's faith in Jesus. Jesus is. So they must look to him above all things. My church, one might say, has encouraged me. Yeah, but your church does not reference the author and perfecter, only Jesus. So look to him. Your your nation's government, your place in this country doesn't begin and end your salvation. Jesus does. So you look ultimately to him. This becomes the incredible practice of one who truly desires Jesus to be the chief commitment and chief affection. So is Jesus the true orientation of your life? Do all things revolve around him or is he just one of many of your life's uh, commitments? Uh, We've looked at this contextually, symbolically, and practically. I'd like to read something to you uh, from beloved author and pastor uh, Paul Tripp. He writes about... uh, the two drawers in our life. You know what drawers are like in our house or in our bedroom. We put all of our stuff in some place when we come home at the end of the day. There is a drawer at the dresser in my in my room at home. And at the end of the day, whatever I have goes in that drawer, change, cell phone, uh, watch, whatever I need to discard goes in that drawer. and And I reach for that when I need what's in that drawer. Paul Tripp makes a spiritual analogy out of this. And I want to read this to you because I think it would be very, very helpful concerning how we need to resolve ourselves positively uh, with this question. The real life drawer is the one that they dig in fervently and are most comfortable with. It contains all the stuff of everyday life, like job, physical health, friends, family, leisure, money, possessions, and daily routine. This drawer dominates their thinking and their doing. It's where they expend most of their emotional and physical energy. It's where most dreams will be realized or dashed. The contents of this drawer are the location of their highs and lows, their joys and their sorrows. But they have a second drawer, the spiritual life drawer. All the God stuff goes here. It's the drawer for Sunday worship, small group, tithes and offerings, short-term mission trips, and the evangelistic conversations with neighbors and extended families. Yes, they believe in Jesus, his forgiveness, and eternity to come. But these beliefs don't have a radical impact on the way they think about themselves and life in general. Their faith is an aspect of their life, but not something that shapes everything In their life. Paul Tripp then concludes. God has a radical single drawer purpose for your life. To make the invisible presence of Jesus visible in everything we think, say, and do. This is not possible if we are living the two drawer life. How is it with you? Is life one drawer, radically speaking, or is it two drawer, culturally speaking? Do you have all your life in one place and all your God stuff in the other where the two never shall cross? And when you need stuff out of the mainstream of life drawer, you pull that out. When you, when you need to be mad at the boss, you pull it out of the real life drawer. When you desire to spend your funds the way you desire to spend them, you pull that out of the real life drawer. When you harbor a grudge, real life. When you want to do something that's just pleasing to self, even if it's harmful to others, real life. When you, when you uh, degrade and scorn others because, because of something emotionally you're dealing with that you haven't taken to the Father, real life drawer, real life drawer, real life drawer. And then when it's time for church, God drawer. When your Christian friends are close to you, God drawer. When it's time to attend your class or small group, God drawer. When someone asks you about your faith, God drawer. That's not God's plan. God's plan is to fix your eyes on Jesus. God's plan is a one drawer, a radical one drawer life. And if the things of this culture in this world have forced you to live out of two drawers, ask God today to bring you back to this incredible, amazing reality of one drawer. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author. He's the perfecter of your faith. There's no other passion. There's no other allegiance that should define your life like this passion and this allegiance. So what defines you two drawers and you use them uh, as you desire or can all of life fit into the drawer that is Jesus and that is where you live your life. I pray that that you can answer this question positively, that Jesus has not been reduced to just one compartment, but that he is the true orientation of your life. He's not just one aspect of your life. But Jesus determines everything about your life, your emotions, your conversations, your thoughts, what you do with your free time, where you spend your money, how you treat your children, how you love your wife. I pray that all of this is determined by Jesus and not by your own reactions and desires. Oh, I pray that Jesus is not just an aspect of your life. You may feel that that's appropriate. I am here to tell you that that is incongruent to the truth of God, to the gospel, and to the true identity of Jesus. It becomes incongruent to make Jesus just an aspect of your life. He's king and he's Lord. And for your life, he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Same for my life. So I pray that you will see Hebrews twelve two. A fresh and in you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. This becomes the fifth question in our teaching series. As we close, I'd like to summarize all of these questions with you into one final question. I call it the bonus question. But remember from where we've come. Question one: Are you seeking God with all your heart? Do you remember question two? Which best defines you, striving to be like Christ or being in Christ? Question three, are you spiritually hungry and thirsty or are you easily satisfied with brief moments of religious involvement? Question four, are you as privately committed to Jesus as much as it appears you are publicly? And then question five, is Jesus the true orientation of your life or have you reduced him to only one expression, of your life's commitments. To sum this up, I just give you one final thoughtful inquiry or question. I call this tongue-in-cheek the bonus question. And here it is. All these other self-examinating uh, questions combined. Uh, let's look at this final self-inquiry or self-examination. Right now at this moment, whether you're online or whether you'll, you'll hear this message in person uh, here in our church. Which perspective do you live by the most? Going to church or being the church? And this is not a new question. But one that is so sensitive and necessary for this present moment. Which defines you the most? Do you just go to church and this is where you live your faith? This is where you do your your God stuff? Or are you being the church? Can I share with you just some simple truth from the Bible about the church to prove that we are more being the church than we are going to church? No, please don't misunderstand Hebrews 10 verse 25. And many of the verses tell us that we should not forsake going to church. We need to gather and we've, We've done a whole teaching series on that one truth, we must gather. But the simple gathering does not define us as significantly as who we are as we gather. So, which most defines your life? Which is the perspective you live by the most? Going to church... We all go to church. We all, in some form, if we're believers, we all, at some point, will go to church. It could be many times a year. It could be every Sunday. It could be online. It could be in person. It could be on holidays. But what best defines your life? If you are a child of God, if your faith is in Jesus, are you just going to church? Or are you being the church? Let me just share with you some references that will help. Acts 20, verse 28, describes the church as the flock of God whom God purchased through Jesus with his own blood, with the blood of his own son. So we are God's flock. We belong to him. Do you see the relationship? Now coming together in the building is vital. Coming together online represents a vital connection. But we are being the church because we're the flock of God. Also, we are referenced as the household of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 describes this. And I I love this verse. The church is the household of God. Paul wrote in that verse, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. While I live in the United States and I'm a citizen here, my greater citizenship is in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this becomes the reference uh, in the phrase, the household of God. My citizenship lies more strongly with God than it does any country Wherein I may have citizenship, I pray you understand this. We are a member of the household of God. I love being on foreign soil, other countries, even third world countries, meeting other Christians and other pastors, and immediately there's a an indescribable bond because we're of the same household. We, we rarely are in the same building. We're the same household. Our citizenship is with God. I, I love that verse. Here's another reminder. That will help us with this question: Are we simply going to church, or are we being the church? Uh, in Ephesians two, verse twenty-one and twenty-two, uh, the church is described as the the temple of God. Now, this is this is vital. You're being joined together in a in a people who rise up to become a holy temple of God. So, while the word temple may seem like a structure becomes the definition, actually, we are being raised up, the people you remember 1 Corinthians 3, 16? You're a temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And so we're being raised up as a people referencing God. We are a, we're a holy people. We are set apart. And so I pray that through your love for Jesus and your commitment to grow to be more like Him, I pray that your, your walk in fellowship with the Holy Spirit is allowing your life to become more of the church and you're not just attending church, but you're being the church. Well, here's a very popular appraisal of the church, the bride of Christ. I'll not take time to read that into our passage, but from Ephesians 5, verse 21 through 33. Oh, the, the relationship between Jesus and the church becomes reference between the, the groom, the bridegroom and the bride. Now, I don't know about your marriage. I would assume the same, but I know in my marriage with my precious bride, we, we love each other so much. We have for quite some time and we have a relationship. We don't just share a house. We don't just share a home. We're related whether we're in a a hut, a tent, a house, or whether we're homeless. We, we have a relationship. And oh, look at how the... Uh, The church's relationship with Jesus becomes described like a marriage. So I pray that this helps you to to have the perspective of being the church instead of just going to church. I pray that you have a relationship with Jesus that far extends participation in your small group or in a public worship service because we're related to the head of the church as the bride is related to the bridegroom. The church being the bride, Jesus the bridegroom. What a beautiful relationship. And one other final reference, First Timothy 3.15, references the church as the pillar and support of truth. Now, again, this sounds structural, but the word truth brings all this into a living organism because as we live and have our being, we demonstrate both in our doctrine teaching and in our discipleship, we demonstrate the truth of God. And so from these references, there are two conclusions I leave with you as we conclude this teaching series. First, the church belongs exclusively to God. You heard that in Acts 20, 28, and many other verses. Acts 20, 28, God purchased the church with his his own blood, the blood of Jesus. And I love how that verse brings in the Trinity. Let me read it to you verbatim. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of God, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, that he purchased with his own blood, meaning through Jesus Christ. And so the full identity of the church references God and his work through the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. The church belongs to God. The church is his. Every, Every day, almost, practically, I ask God to have his way, not only in my life, but in his church, and we need to allow that truth to invade our thoughts and our decisions and our and our and our pursuits the church through Jesus belongs to God he purchased it through his son the church belongs to him a final conclusion the church expresses a love relationship with Jesus more than an organization we heard that in some of the truths here so i pray that these two concluding truths will will help you um, in in this closing self-examining question and as a reminder that question simply is um, which perspective do you live by the most going to church or being the church thank you for uh, joining us in this uh, in this incredible teaching series these five questions and I pray that they've drawn you more deeply to an understanding of, of who you are in your walk of faith I just close with this invitation as has been said to me over and over again during the last three weeks. Pastor, some of these questions are difficult. I'm not sure where to go next. I'll, be, I'll begin a teaching series soon on how to overcome discouragement. Be assured, God hasn't brought these questions to you to discourage you by no means. He's brought these questions to you through His Holy Word so that you and I might better know where in our lives God needs to have control. It becomes so easy to be overly responsive to the negative that has happened in our world, especially in these last 15 to 18 months. It becomes easy to, to become overly responsive. Sometimes negativism can come out. Sometimes our priorities can can become skewed. Sometimes uh, emotive language overrides the true sentiment of our heart. And sometimes things just get totally out of balance. And, to coin the old phrase out of whack and what a precious time God has given us not an easy journey but a precious time to look at these questions to take a strong look within so I pray these questions have been helpful and most of all I pray that you have seen in your life of faith that the relationship with Jesus matters most and your relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ matters most So let's move from these questions, loving God and loving others well. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, and for salvation, you can do that today by simply praying, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you. I I believe you died on the cross and rose from the grave. And I I need you in my life to forgive me of my sin and to make me brand new. I'm tired of doing things on my own. You can pray that. Jesus will hear your prayer. And he will draw you to himself if you'll just open your heart to him. And and I I ask that if you, you feel like God is leading you to make that prayer, or if he's prayed that prayer, would you reach out to the website address that is here? We'll be glad to quickly respond and have a conversation with you. Also, if you feel disconnected from the church, maybe from from this church or from other churches, and maybe one of the reasons you're online is because you have felt disconnected from the church, please remember we are called to gather together. And I know there are circumstances that that will uh, will will make necessary an online engagement. And I and I will continue to be here online with you, but don't worry about that. But when possible, we need to gather together as much as possible, as it depends on us. We need each other in the body of Christ. We need the fellowship. We need the community. Jesus, Jesus taught that community. The, the New Testament writers demonstrated carefully and clearly how much a priority it is that we gather together. So, so focus on your love for Jesus and your love for others. And I pray that these questions of self-examination have further encouraged you in those two relationships. Loving God with all of our heart, loving Jesus with all of our heart, and loving one another as ourselves. That's the great commandment, and I pray that we're pursuing that with all of our heart. Thank you for being a part of this teaching series. If you'd like to review any part of this series, go to our online, uh, our website. You'll you'll be able to track uh, those, those sermons there and, and revisit some of these teachings Many of you have asked for that, so that's located on our website. You can easily find the previous sermons there. Again, thank you. I'd love to pray with you before we go. Father, bless the teaching of your word that has gone forth. Bless those who have received your word. Grow us more in, in thy image, in thy truth. Lead us in your way. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, Amen enjoy this time with you. I look forward to seeing you soon. Love you a lot. God bless.